Thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you are crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. Puberty was no fun. At least for me, maybe it was for you, but you know, just like, and I doubt it though, but like you know, growing into your skin and lots of changes going on, changes you don't really understand. And you kind of feel like it wasn't long ago, like you're like a carefree kid and now you're like sort of an adult and trying to talk to adults and like act like an adult, but you really don't feel like an adult. I mean, heck, I, I still feel that. But 11 years old, I, I went through it like a growth spurt. As a child, I was more on the smaller side. I, I fit my family stature more. And then puberty hit me like a truck. Woke up, you know, just like taller, lanky, and voice cracking. And I was constantly knocking stuff over and tripping over my own feet because I didn't really, I wasn't used to my own body. And that's the problem with growth, isn't it? Like whether it's physical growth or personal growth, organizational growth, business growth, as you or your team grows, all of a sudden these challenges begin to present themselves. It's kind of like the time Nicole called me, I was in the office and she said, hey, can you pick up some bread on the way home for, for dinner, having soup? And there was like a, there's a Panera bread opening in town. So I swung by and I asked for a fresh loaf of the sourdough bread, you know, like the good stuff. And they said, well, sorry, sir, we're all out of bread. Like, well, what do you mean? You're out? Yeah, we're all out of bread. Bread is literally in your name. Like, I feel like that's like the one thing that you shouldn't run out of. Like, well... Like, we have soup, though, sir. Like, yeah, but you're not Panera soup, though. You're, you're Panera bread. It's just growth problems, and, and some of that's to be expected. I think we all know, like, businesses or maybe cafes or, you know, coffee shops, restaurants that we really liked when they were small, but when they started to get more busy and they started to expand, their service kind of suffered, and, and we didn't really like the expansion. We liked them when they were smaller because growth can be clumsy, and it happens with church. In fact, you might have seen it around here. And interestingly enough, the early church in Acts went through some clumsy puberty-like growth. And what the church did teaches us how to handle that growth. This is going to be so good for us as a church, for us personally, even for us professionally. Grab a Bible. We're in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Page 914. The Bible's in the chairs. I encourage you to turn there. Otherwise, a lot of people use their phones with the Bridge app. And that way, if and when I get boring, you can just switch over to other apps. But Acts chapter 6 is where we're at. Let me pray, and we'll jump right into this. God, we thank you so much that we can gather together, that we can do church. And we thank you for the beauty of church. Imperfect, uh, easy to criticize in many aspects, which is sad. We thank you that you just love the church. Father, we thank you that we can lift high your name and we can sing to you that you not only hear us, but that you enjoy our worship. We thank you, thank you that we can give to you and we thank you that you speak to us, that this is a very special moment, that you speak to us in a corporate way as we're gathered together. Father, I ask that during this time we don't fight off any conviction, but we humbly submit ourselves to your word, ready for whatever you have for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the lens of Scripture zooms into Acts chapter 6, there they all sit, all together, as a group. Some even consider it family. But it still feels weird. 
at first it was exciting. It was like different cultures and different colors and different classes that were all colliding together into this hodgepodge group of, in some ways, misfits. Their story is inspiring, even emotional. If they did documentaries back then, there'd be a documentary about this for sure. I mean, they cheered for each other during baptism. They broke bread in each other's homes. The upper class held garage sales to fund the education for the lower class in the group. I mean, it was beautiful. In the history of history itself, I mean, there, there had never been anything like this. Yet there they sit. The adrenaline rush is subsiding. The high emotions are now calming down. And now they're starting to feel some growing pains. And they fear that there's a fracture that is forming in the group. Oh, they'll all read together and they worship together and they eat together. They just don't feel together as much. Clicks are forming. Invitations to break bread usually stay within those clicks. Political groups and ages and classes drift towards sitting together. Instead of harmonizing and really focusing on the majors, the church is beginning to feel a pull to represent the section city around it. This unprecedented growth is beginning to present some problems. And Luke gives us the details on it. Verse one of chapter six, it says, and now in those days, or these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Now, before we get to the complaint box, we'll open up the complaint box in just a second. Uh, let's get some context here. Otherwise, the complaint that they're gonna raise, it really doesn't make much sense. So verse one, if you notice, and this might be worth highlighting or underlining, is Hellenists and Hebrews. There's two different groups. And believe it or not, these two groups, their division started 400 years before that with Alexander the Great. See, Alexander the Great swept through the known world and he promoted Hellenism. Hellenism is just Greek culture. So there's like a Greek flair. It was like the new trend. Uh, this trend was sweeping the empire. People were dressing more Greek. They were cooking Greek food, gyros and Nagasaki. And Greek literature was like the hot new trend. And just about everybody adds like this Greek flair to their, to their life, except the Jews in Israel. The Jews in Israel decided, we don't need no Saganaki, okay? God established our culture, and we're going to hold on to our culture. So instead of speaking Greek, they spoke Aramaic, they, they dressed, they ate, and they read like Jews. However, the Jews outside of Israel decided, it's fine to adopt Greek culture. Now, they still believed in Yahweh, they still read the Torah, Scripture, they still celebrated Jewish holidays, but they enjoyed Saganaki because who wouldn't? And so... After Alexander the Great, there were two different types of Jews, so to speak. And we see them here in, Luke points them out here in verse one. You have the, the Hellenist Jew and the Greek, or the, the Hellenist or the Greek Jew, and then you have the Hebrew Jew. And those things were like overly tense. It was like not some big war going on. These groups did disagree with each other. The Hebrew Jews looked at the Hellenist Jews and said, you guys compromised. I mean, we held on to our precious culture. We didn't bend. You guys folded like a cheap suit to fit into the world. The Hellenist Jews would look at the Hebrew Jews and think, you guys are out of date. I mean, you guys are behind the times. We're trying to be more relevant here. We haven't disobeyed scripture. We still follow scripture, but we fit in with this trend. You're more irrelevant. But now they're worshiping together in the same church. And it doesn't take long for these differences to start ruffling some feathers and start boiling over. And so this is what Luke is addressing here. At the end of verse 1, this is a complaint by the Hellenists who rose against the Hebrews because their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, this is where we really want to add a bunch of color to the story. And to be fair, we do this all the time in our own personal lives. 
to like, we'll, we'll see something that isn't right. Or maybe we feel something that isn't right. We kind of, maybe we feel overlooked or maybe we weren't invited to something or maybe we felt kind of like slighted in some sort of way. And so what we do is we then create our own story. It's very, it's very natural. We want to just, we feel hurt. And so we want to justify the hurt that we feel. So we, we think things like, well, they didn't invite me because they think I wasn't invited to that meeting because they're really threatened by me. They're just really jealous. And we start creating our own stories. We're guilty of that all the time. And it could easily happen here. You think about it. The Hellenists could have been like, it looks like the Hebrew Jews are in charge of this church. Looks like the Hebrew Jews are more preferred because they're widows. Look at their widows. Their widows are fine. Ours are not. Doesn't look like the Hellenist Jews are welcome here. Or here's a very common thing to think. They got so big, the little people don't matter anymore. This church outgrew the poor old widows. Things aren't, things aren't like they used to be around here, you know, when we were smaller. It was just kind of better. See, when we feel hurt, we start to fill in the gap with our own stories because we want to bring reason to our pain because it does help in our pain in, in a small way. And so let me just call a timeout here, and I want to look at this verse from a, from a more fair perspective. This could have been a completely unintentional oversight. They're given a lot of different things at play. Maybe the Hebrew widows were just more involved and so it's just easier to keep them on the radar. Or maybe at first the Greek widows, they didn't really have any need, but then when they started to feel some need, they, did, they didn't speak up. I mean, these are, these are very big moments where we have to practice this phrase right here, believe the best. We say this all the time on staff. This is one of our staff values, believe the best. In fact, I repeat this with my own family. I repeated this to my daughters last night. Just believe the best. Because the healthiest marriages, families, churches, friendships, teams, they all have this culture of believing the best about each other in situations, especially when feelings get hurt. See, I would bet, I would bet, I would venture to say the majority of our issues, and maybe we carried some issues in here today, just got some things in the back of our mind, some situations where we're kind of feeling awkward or maybe we feel hurt. Maybe there's some marriage spats or some family fractures or some work drama. I would venture to say a lot of, not all, a lot of that would disappear if we just learned to champion this really well. Just believe the best. In fact, much of good counseling, I've had counselors do this with me. Much of good counseling is convincing someone, hey, listen, they're not out to get you, Okay. They didn't intentionally do that to you to disrespect you. There's not like some big conspiracy. There's not some like big cover-up scandal. Let's not add a bunch of color to this. Like, let's remember you love them. They're good people. We can believe the best. Now, yeah, sure, still have the conversation with the right people about what happened, like here in verse one, but believe the best beforehand and going into it. And some of our lives would just drastically change overnight. Some of our homes would drastically change overnight if we just championed this. We're still only in verse one, but already we're, this text is giving us a principle and it's a massive one. Growth requires grace. If you wanna be part of anything that grows, whether it's somebody's life or an organization, a church, there has to be a great amount of grace for the growing pains that are inevitable. So I think about it for myself, going back to puberty. My goodness, you think I'm annoying and awkward now? I was far more annoying and awkward back when I was 12, 13, 14. The people who made the biggest difference in my life during that time were those who had grace for my annoyances. And they still loved awkward me. Precious people who had grace with me made a big impact in my life. If you ever want to be part of anything that grows, you must carry a great amount of grace. 
And I will say this church included, as a church, we grew 35% last year. And when there's a flood of growth like that, things get dropped. Like this church in Acts, like systems need upgrading when you have a flood of growth. Like we're not perfect around here. And as we grow, weaknesses are exposed. And we're not crazy to think that we're perfect. But those who stick with the growing pains and have grace, they make the biggest impact in this church and in the community around it. Now, I look back, I've been at this church 14 years now. I look back at this church like about, I don't know, 10, 10, 12 years ago. I mean, I, and I, I remember people, friends who had left because they got annoyed about little things here and there because you just get annoyed in church. That's part of the sanctification process as God perfects you through the annoyances of the church. But they just get annoyed and they leave. And I look back at them now, I'm not like angry with them. I'm like, man, you missed out on so much. If you just had more grace and stuck with us, you could, you could have been part of something big that God did here. Grace is required for growth. Sometimes we have to roll with drop balls and failed systems and just celebrate, but hey, okay, things aren't perfect, but hey, God, God's working and moving and we're growing and I'd rather be part of messy growth. And so I'll just have grace. Growth requires grace, whether it's children, people, churches, businesses, discipleship with people. And we see that playing out in the text. Thankfully, this early church doesn't divide. Now it definitely could have. Things could have went down here. All it would take is for the Hellenist groups to circle up and run with their stories and distrust leadership. It doesn't happen. There's just grace. And continue on. It's in the 12, verse 2, summon the full number of disciples and said, in fact, I'll pop this up on the screen because this just seems very insensitive. He said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to, to serve tables. Sheesh. It's a little insensitive. I mean, come on, put yourself in, in this church's shoes. Imagine... Imagine you're a church and you notice there's like a group of people, let's say they're older ladies, and you kind of feel like, you know, they're, they're, they're being overlooked and they have some needs. And so you have the heart, you take that to the campus pastor, you take it to Denim, you meet with Denim and, okay, Denim, I, you know, these ladies, I think we need to help them. And what if Denim looked across his desk to you and said, okay, well, we're not going to give up taking our focus off teaching to wait tables. It's like, you might leave the church, but let's press into this just a little bit more because when we push past our initial feelings, which aren't truth, but our initial feelings, we find an important reminder here. The disciples are teaching the church the main purpose of the church. We've been commissioned by Jesus to preach. This is the great commission. Make disciples and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. That's, that is the great commission. And to be fair, that, to do that well takes a lot of time. It's kind of funny. People will... Uh, People sometimes ask me, be like, Junior, uh, you preach on the weekends, but like, uh, what do you do the other six days of the week? It's like, well, I don't know, lay around, I panhandle quite a bit, you know, I just, uh, and, and they mean nothing by it. Um, but think about it this way. You remember when you were in school and you'd have to write a term paper? Remember how much stress that was to like write that term paper, all the study and getting everything compiled up together and all of that. Imagine writing that every week, a term paper, and then presenting it to your family and friends. A 40 minute speech and you can be assured feedback will be given every single time. And, and every week it has to be something fresh and it has to be new and it has to capture attention. It has to be studied and it has to be accurate. It has to be practical. You can't repeat it. It has to be relevant. It should hit the new person, but it also has to touch the person who's been in their Bible for decades. Also, those who teach will be judged more severely. So that's good to keep in mind. It's, I mean, that's a lot of pressure that takes a lot of, a lot of time. Recently, I was talking to a, an old, very successful retired preacher now. And he said to me, he's like, Junior, 
I could have easily worked another decade in ministry, but like writing and preaching, it just like aged me. And I don't say that to like make you feel bad for me. I'm fine. I'm just defending these guys right here. There's a lot of work that goes into teaching if it's, if it's good. And so the apostles here, I know it sounds insensitive, but they're establishing some boundaries here. Saying, okay, the primary command of Jesus is, is teaching. We need to teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. If we were to start waiting tables, teaching would suffer. But widows do matter. Church needs to care. I mean, that's part of the reason we're running this marathon, right? For world vision. It's part of the reason we, we do just one international. And I mean, we do care about other people, but the teaching of God's word is, is very primary. And so in verse three, they say, pick out seven guys. If you look at verse three, they say, pick out seven guys to run with this. Teachers will teach, distributors will distribute. And I gotta say, I like their style. Because anytime you have a church, there's always a million ideas flying out around there about how we sh- what we should do as a church. And I understand, people have their ideas, they get all excited about church, and, and that's fine and fun. But, um, and I always feel terrible doing this, but like half of our job as a church is just squashing ideas. And I always feel bad every time. But we get some weird ideas around here sometimes. Um, I had this, uh, an old guy uh, had an idea, and he was my friend. Uh, he's passed away now. But um, very kind, older man, good heart. But he wanted to meet with me one day. He's like, do you know, I had this really great idea. Can we meet? So we, we met. I was like, all right, what's your idea? He said, well, what if this summer we buy a really big oversized tricycle and we ride it in a parade? And Junior, you pedal the tricycle. I'll ride on, on your back with the Kermit the Frog puppet. And we hand out Bibles. I like, oh, buddy, we're not going to do that. That's, I love your heart, but we're not going to do that. But if ideas are good, our church will say the same thing that this church says. You should do that then for sure. Like if, if God put that on your heart to recruit a team to go to nursing homes, that is awesome. And you should definitely do that. Now, we're not going to like make a big church announcement and drop everything to do this because we get a million of these. But you should totally do that. And then let's see how it grows. Who knows if it takes off, maybe it becomes a really big thing around here. But sometimes... The expe- not always, but sometimes the expectation can kind of be like, all right, well, I came up with an idea, now you guys go do it. And the disciples here say, nah, hold on, boundaries, no reverse delegation. We're not like sitting around hoping that you find something for us to do. Why don't you guys do that? Assemble a team and let's make that happen. And that's exactly what they did. And it gives us point number two, which is such a big point, And that is love sees weakness as an opportunity to bless. True love We'll see weakness within an organization or a weakness within a church or a weakness even within a person. And they see that as an opportunity to bless them. And that's exactly what happens here. There's a weakness in the church. Widows aren't getting food. That is a weakness. But instead of sounding the alarms, they see that as a way to jump in and bless. See, there's two different types of of people. And, And to be fair, we've been both of these people. But there's two different types of people. The first person is a weakness announcer. And a lot of times we do this with our our jobs if we're not the boss. Like, well, this is wrong and this is not at the par and they didn't think about that and the ball always gets dropped there and look at me finding all the issues, I'm a pretty smart person. And they're very exhausting to hang out with and nobody ever thinks that they're this person. The second person is a weakness strengthener. So they see the same weakness in an organization or a team or at work and in a church, and they feel as though God is calling them then to jump in and to strengthen that weakness. People like this are very, very precious. I work with a lot of those people. You can probably guess. I'm not very good at a lot of stuff. Actually, I'm really good at forgetting forgetting stuff. 
and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, but like bi-weekly, I mean, it's, it's got to at least be twice a month, a staff member will pop into my office and they will kindly say, hey, Junior, you are so good at this. You are so terrible at this. And it's kind of driving my team nuts over here. So can we just like take this from you and then you can just maybe do what you're, you're good at. And it's, it's so gracious and I feel bad every time, but I've handled a lot of stuff over the way, a lot of stuff over the years. And again, at first I feel bad, but then I, then I think as they leave, like how cool is that though? Like they could have easily got together as a team and been like, Junior doesn't care about our stuff and Junior only cares and he's not as useful as people think, which the last one would be true. But instead of pointing at my weaknesses, they just graciously jump into bless. And they are invaluable teammates that I hope I get to work with for a long time, partly so that you'd never see how inept I really am. And, and that's very true. See, anytime we see a problem, I guarantee you see this at work. There's a real pull to point that out and get talking. I knew this would happen. They didn't listen to me. And if they'd only blah, 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 blah. It's God's people who do what Jesus did for us. I see that issue. I'll graciously step in. And that's an opportunity to bless. Here's another way to think about this. The number one reason, I, I mean, it was for a few years. I'm not sure it is recently, but the number one reason that people will leave a church is that they feel disconnected. And that happens at the bridge, and, and it's terrible. I, I feel sad every time. It's like, I hate that they felt that they weren't connected, but that's groups and people, and it just happens. But often, not always, the problem would be solved by following this example here. And I've told people this, thinking, okay, I don't feel connected, which means other people might not feel connected as well. This might be an or, a weakness around here, but instead of like leaving and, and whining, I'm going to fill that hole and I'm going, to, I'm going to connect with as many people as possible. I'm going to go out of my way to meet as many new pop people as possible and then, and then facilitate community and I'm going to bless that weakness. I guarantee that person who has that mindset within six weeks are going to feel so connected while also strengthening the weakness. Love will see weakness as an opportunity to be a blessing. Verse five says, and, and this is, I love this verse. Verse five says, and what they said, please the whole gathering. If you write in your Bibles, I would like circle or highlight, underline whole gathering, not half the gathering, not part of the gathering, the whole gathering. You contrast verse five with verse, four, verse one. In fact, I would even write, like draw a line from verse five to verse one. Verse one, there's division. It starts out with two groups. Verse five, there's the whole. That's pretty interesting. Conflict can lead to unity. And then when you add in verse seven, it's even more wild. They grow numerically again. So the start of this text is shaky. The end is pretty sweet. And it gives us point number three, conflict can spur growth. Conflict can spur growth. When handled correctly, conflict can lead to great things. I think about it for Nicole and I. Believe it or not, we've had spats over the years. She's, been, she's wrong a lot, but I have a lot of grace with her. You know, and I'm getting her there. It's just going to take some time with her. Um, no, of course not. For Nicole and I, the imperfect, but I would say like our marriage is just fun. The imperfect, but fun marriage we enjoy today is, is a product of handling a lot of conflict over the years in good ways. Every touchy subject has been an opportunity for her and I to, to come together and to grow closer. Healthy conflict can be great for growth. The problem is, is too often we run from conflict. And so we feel slighted or we get hurt. And we, we then distance ourselves, which, by the way, gives the enemy a massive foothold in our lives. Unresolved conflict is a landmine in a relationship. Like some of our homes are just laden with landmines. Like home is just like not life-giving. 
And to make it worse, what often happens is we don't want to engage the conflict, but we know we need to. And so what we do is we make ourselves get really angry so that I have the courage to say it like it is. That's what cowards do. Getting good at having conflict is one of the most underrated skills, but it is a big part of following Jesus because it creates good marriages, great parents, great bosses, great churches. As God's people, we have to showcase this in our marriages, in our friendships, with our kids, at our jobs. Despite the high emotions and hurt feelings, we have to be a people who care a lot about approaching and handling conflict well. Having courage to have a conversation, but having grace in that as well. And believing the best up until that point and beyond that point. To reach that emotional capacity to be able to go beyond our feelings, which do not determine truth, in order to find truth and resolve the conflict. And those who can find that and do that find themselves with more influence over the years. And we see that playing out here. It says, And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas. I'm making up all the pronunciations of these names a proselyte of Antioch. Uh, any names in here look familiar to you at all? No, it's okay if it doesn't. But for some in here, it might, there might be some names that look familiar in here. Philip, we're going to get to know better as time goes on. Stephen is a big one, though. And we're going we're gonna to look at his story closer next week. Spoiler alert, he's murdered. Um, soon he'll be, why is that funny? You're laughing, he's murdered, my goodness. Uh, no, it sounds like a Dateline special. That's just a little pitch for next week. Um, Soon he'll be preaching, he'll be leading. Stephen will be a known face and a known household name. Um, today, Stephen is venerated as a saint, like St. Stephen's, like cathedrals and schools named after him. But this is where he starts. I find this interesting. Stephen's leadership begins with just busting tables for widows. He was passionate and he was faithful in the very small things. And then God brought Stephen bigger and bigger things. Verse six, and they set them before the apostles and they prayed and laid hands on them. Verse seven, and the word of the Lord continued to increase. And we already pointed this out, but the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many, this is interesting, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the very priests that were serving up on the Temple Mount, very influential guys in Judaism, they started attending church, worshiping and breaking bread of the church. And is this right here that launches the church back into even more of the limelight. Like this, this makes the church the talk of the town. Now, it'll prove deadly for Stephen, like it's this right here that will ultimately lead to Stephen's murder next week because with more influence comes attack. If you want more influence, you just have to be ready for more attack. And Stephen knows that and, and we'll see that play out next week. So we'll leave that on that cliffhanger. But one more point in the notes and then we'll call it. Point number four, usually we have three points, but um, we couldn't leave this one out. Zooming out from this text, there's this beautiful principle lodged here in this chapter. Yes, the church had grace with the growing pains. They saw weakness as an opportunity to bless, conflict spurred growth, all of that's great. But to me, the real heroes of the story, which are the ones with the hurt feelings, they did something so rare today, and it just can't be left unsaid, and that is propose instead of oppose. Propose instead of oppose. Both sides of this conflict were solution-oriented. This is my number one issue with politics today. And this is why um, as a church, we're very careful when it comes to just the political conversations that we have today, because most of it is not solution oriented. It is just mainly opposing. But both sides here, this is just a biblical concept, are solution oriented. They didn't spend their time and their mental energy judging motives and attacking the other side. They didn't start some sort of investigation into favoritism. We got to find all these patterns. They didn't blow things out of proportion. They aimed their passion and their conversation at solutions. It is so simple. It is so powerful. 
It is so rare. Because we live in a world on both sides of the spectrum. I don't care if you're liberal or conservative. We live in a world that romanticizes opposition. Stand up, stand your ground, fight, march. Like it's a campaign year. So it's like, this is gonna be a fever pitch this year. Stand up, post, march. We get very emotional, you know, driven by the fight. And I'm not saying there's never a time to like stand up against something. Sure, okay, that's fine. But it's those who have a habit of, of proposing real solutions and bringing real solutions to the table that end up with more influence. Like why not offer something if you can instead of just opposing? How different would the story have been if the Hellenist Jews just decided to oppose? Hey, we're gonna get together, we're gonna march. We don't trust leadership. We've grown too much. We oppose your favoritism. Well, suddenly there's like this major fracture at a very pivotal moment in the church. But instead of opposing, you have level heads, people with high emotional intelligence, high thinkers propose solutions. And we would do well to do the same. I mean, think about it. What would our communities look like? In fact, what would the church's reputation look like if instead of just cheap complaints, we went further and graciously brought solutions to the problems that we see around us? Instead of having a reputation for being just another critic whose voice is lost in the noise, now we're a people of, of a reputation with hope. Like, yeah, sure, we see the problems that everybody else sees. Who doesn't see those problems? It doesn't make us more smarter. Of course we see the problems. But more than that, we have vision of, of, of a better future. And that was the early church. But also, let's not forget, before the early church, this was God with us. We don't just like practice these things because, well, it worked out for these people, so we should do it too. Like we do this because this is what Jesus did and we claim to follow Jesus. That God sees our sin and he blesses us. God is solution-oriented. Jesus takes our sin to the cross. God is gracious with our growth. Instead of opposing us, he proposes a way back to him, the empty tomb. Like this is how we live the gospel. We bring the gospel to all of the weaknesses and the problems that we see. We're gracious with each other. We believe the best at every turn. We, we, we bump up against the weakness. We see it as an opportunity to just be a blessing. Not because we feel like it. We never will feel like it. We do it because this is what our God does for us. You saw in the, uh, the what's happening, you know, our camp this summer and, you know, letting everybody know, hey, sign your kids up for high school and middle school camp. We just signed my oldest up for middle school camp this year, which is crazy. I'm gonna be dropping her off at youth group this summer. I know, I don't look that old. I get it all the time. Um, <laughs> now, I, to be fair, it's killing me. So I hope you don't mind if I get a little bit sentimental for, for just a second. But I feel like it was yesterday that I was sitting in the ultrasound room and Nicole was lying on that bed with like that jelly all over her belly and they had like that camera you know on her stomach and you're staring at a blob on the screen like that's your baby and it's like it's like a deformed jelly bean you know and not quite sure what you're looking at but then they say hey it's a girl the first thought I had when I heard it was a girl like oh I gotta pay for another for, for a wedding you know <laughs> ah. and several months later she came out and and I was the I was the first to hold her proud as I'll get out like I'm a dad and I have a daughter I'm a girl dad took her home and Nicole knew what to do. I had no idea what was going on. And then Nicole had to go back to work, uh, working nights, uh, not every night, but working nights as a nurse. And so it was, it was me and a baby. Um, a lot of nights just uh, 
together. And man, did we have a lot of grace with each other on those nights that mommy was working. You know, she would scream at all hours of the night and I'd stumble around the house to go warm up a bottle at 2 a.m. because we, we had like the, the, the milk frozen in little, I didn't know what's going on. I was just told like in the freezer, there are frozen milk bags. Oh, okay. And you put this in a steamer and you steam it up and you put it in the bottle and and, uh, you know, trying to figure that out at 2 a.m., stumbling around and bad parenting. But I would I'd bring Madison into my bed so that I could just like lay there and, and feed her. And there's a couple of times I'd like fall asleep and I'd wake up to her crying with like milk all over. It's like, oh, I got to warm up another bottle, you know, <laughs> like half of it spilled. And then she'd have like these massive, these, uh, these diaper blowouts, like up to her neck, you know, changing the bedding in the middle of the night. It's like, how does a baby poop that much? And putting her in the bath at 3 a.m., in first grade, she learned to spell, and she would she would practice her spelling by carving names on her wood trim. I, one time, I punished her for carving on her wood trim, and as she was crying, I look over at like what she carved, and it was a heart with dad in the middle. It's like, come on, kid. She played soccer one year, the worst soccer player I'd ever seen. Like, I think this is the only time she touched the ball. I was the coach of her team, Saturday mornings and just out there watching her pick flowers with her friend on the field. They would talk about what they're going to wear at the next game. It's like, your jersey. Um, in second grade, there was a friend's night here at Awana, and she didn't have a friend to bring to Awana, but she really wanted to bring a friend, so she made a friend out of paper. It's like, what a weird kid. <laughs> and then the next year, she's obsessed with Amish. Like, what do you do with that? There's been a lot of these like awkward stages and growing pains and odd questions and hard conversations. But like looking back on it all, it's like, man, I've loved every single minute of it because I love her. She's my daughter. I want to be there for all the growth, for all the awkwardness. And I was looking at her the other night just thinking like, I love what you're becoming. You're just this bubbly, adventurous, artistic young woman. And in a small way, I got the great honor of, of being a big part of her journey. Like the funny little awkward stages are now fun to look back on and, and reminisce on. And I know a lot more is to come. I get people saying to me all the time, like, oh, just wait for middle school though, Junior. And I always say, I can't wait, bring it on. I can't wait, I wanna be there in it because I love her. I wanna be there with her, with my arm on her shoulder, walking alongside of her with, in that. Like, bring it on because I love her. And I'm far from the perfect dad. How much more does the perfect father do that for us? Has he had grace with you? Yeah, better believe it. Even just this last week, so much grace. Does he notice your weaknesses and your sin? Yeah. Does he bless you? Absolutely. Hasn't he proposed vision for your life instead of just opposing you? Like, how can we not champion this? Jesus said, as I have loved you, so love one another. Let's go love. Make sure the best thing you do is just loving. Love through the awkward, love through the ridiculous, love through the hurt feelings and love through the growth. This is what we do for each other. Sure, in parenting, but also in marriage and in work relationships and in friendships and in church community, we show up and we believe the best and we bless each other's weaknesses. And yeah, okay, we have hard conversations and we have confrontations and we disagree and we push each other and we confront sin. Absolutely. But all of that is, is done with love. Like we're there. Long haul. For better or for worse because that's what our dad has done for us. That's what our dad does for us. And that's what our dad, you better believe, will do 
for us. And so we turn around and that's what we do for each other. It's a beautiful text, isn't it? And so we ask ourselves, so what? As we always do, coming out of God's word. And God speaks. And knowing how the Holy Spirit often works, he puts something on our heart. And a lot of times, if you're like me, you can spend some time fighting that off. But the fact of the matter is he brought something, something to your mind, something to your heart when it comes to this. What's he convicting you of? Maybe it's a few things. Maybe you just think like, man, I, I'm so much of a weakness announcer at my job and I'm not really showing the gospel when I go to work. So I just announce all the little weaknesses. Maybe you struggle to have grace with times of growth. Maybe you struggle to believe the best. You just tend toward the worst. Maybe there's a few different things here. We're gonna go into a time of corporate reflection as we always do, just some time that we need before God personally some things we need to take care of and, and confess to God and, and make some commitments moving forward. But maybe a good question to guide this time of reflection is, is what opportunity has God given you to be a blessing? Usually the opportunity looks like a headache. And maybe you walked in here just like, I'm dreading this Monday morning or next week. It's a headache it's an often an area that you tend to complain a lot. Or it's something that you want to run from. But what opportunity has God put in your life? Say, all right, do what I've done for you. And you're going to bless this weakness and take this headache and turn it into a wonderful situation because that's what I've done for you. Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.